Good afternoon. Welcome to the panel Thursday afternoon. Wallace Chapman here. We are with Dean Hall uh, and uh, Joe McCarroll this afternoon. And we are crossing to Australia later in the program. Erin Patterson, a.k.a. Australia's mushroom cook, has been arrested more on that later. About this, an anonymous donor has made a substantial cash donation to help staff from the collapsed supermarket company Soupy. The online business went into voluntary administration owing $3 million. Launched more than a couple of years ago in a bid to bring more competition to a market dominated by the two big players, but struggled to achieve that scale necessary to be competitive. But the plight of the 120-plus staff, that resonated with many. Released from their job, immediately left with outstanding wages. Thank goodness for a donor, but what are your rights if this happens again? The first meeting of creditors will take place on the 9th of November. With us is Caro Riga from Black Door Law, specialising in employment law. Kia ora, Caro. Kia ora, Willis. I guess it isn't the first, won't be the last. Have you seen similar sorts of scenarios to this in your line of work? Um, it, companies going into liquidation does happen often, um, and based on the way in which the economy is going at the moment, it's probably going to be a bit more likely. So we have seen um, employees, uh, displaced because of that um, and uh, trying to figure out how they can get their legal entitlements. All right, so this is a scenario that does happen. I mean, what should a terminated employee do? Uh, that's a that's a really good question. So um, in the case of a liquidation, there's a... There's a preference of of creditors. Um, the starting point is secured creditors, often the bank. The next is uh, the liquidated li- liquidators' costs, and then thirdly is employees. So employees who are impacted by a liquidation um, should make a claim to the liquidator, and at that point. Um, there will be an assessment of whether or not there's uh, any money for them to receive payment of wages and other outstanding entitlements like annual leave. Okay, so that's that's the way it goes. We've got a panel here, as you know, Caro. Joe. Well, I guess I don't really... um, I mean, I just think this is such a sad story, Caro. I mean, as you say, it does happen again and again, but you think of these people, it's couple of months till Christmas. I know I don't want to sound like, you know, I'm tiny violin playing, but it's just the the emotional cost of these things is probably where the real loss is for me because that would be so devastating to suddenly lose your job that you thought you were going to go in to do that very day. Um, I don't know. What advice would you give to people in terms of coping with it? Um, the first thing I would say is that, um, and I say it to my clients all the time, um, no job is worth your mental health, so ensure that you are looking after your mental health at all times and making decisions that support that. Um, and in these very particular situations, um, getting support where you can. Um, obviously, these particular employees have been supported financially by the, the donor swooping and then making um, such a generous contribution to them. But making sure that you're taking steps um, as soon as you possibly can to protect yourself financially and 
really wrapping, uh, getting the the personal support wrapped around you um, and identifying that, unfortunately, it's not in these situations, it's not a personal um, decision that's been made. It's a, a very sad reality of, of business sometimes and trying to trying to find the positives in a really bad situation. So that's not really legal advice, but more just yeah. Um, yeah, looking looking out for yourself. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. understood. Caro uh, Dean. Yeah, so I mean, I've I've um, I set up my video game studio from scratch, and you know, we've got like 60, 70 employees, and um, mm. I've had a few failed businesses before that, and um, they were small; they were just me, so you know, no one else was really impacted. But um, financially, I was heavily impacted. You know, I had no money and a lot of debt, and then got more debt, and it just seemed devastating to me at the time. So I think there's sort of multiple layers of devastation that happen if you're a founder. Um, as well as an employee or a creditor uh, or anything. But I also think you, you touched on, Joe, that emotional cost. It can be like a grief. Um, and I think you have to talk about that and you have to acknowledge it as well. Uh, even employees who, who really believed in maybe the work they were doing or were working in a project they thought was going to right. you know, really help, that, that can be a sense of grief of just leaving that. And I, I think um, I'd love to see... A future, you know, government or something almost run a what I call a national conversation around failure because I know when we have young people coming through, sometimes I think the thing they're most not prepared for is facing failure. And I often get invited to talk about all my successes, but really what I'm more interested in is how I overcame failures. That's yeah. what's that's that's where documentaries are interesting. Yeah, so I, think, I might come back to that because uh, I, I, I here as a person as a backdrop, you have a company now worth, what, tens of millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. I assume that was your first, but it wasn't. You fail in the first two or three. Can I just come back to you on that, Dean, because yeah, sure. I want to p- pick your brains on this. But uh, uh, people are saying um, in terms of um, employees, is there any sort of preferential status for employees or not, Caro? Uh, or to put it in one text, shouldn't the workers p- be paid first? Yeah, um, look, this is where the Companies Act comes into play and that's what I was saying before is that there is a preference but um, they come after the secured creditors and the the liquidators' costs. So um, they're high up on the list. Um, But picking up on Dean's point around failure, I think it's really important that those who are entering into business really do understand their director's obligations. Mm. And mm-hmm. and one right. of the things is that you shouldn't be trading while you're yeah. insolvent. And, um, and the Employment Relations Act now enables uh, people to sue directors personally where they have made knowing and reckless decisions that have put... Um, things like their minimum entitlements, which include their wages and their Holiday Act entitlements um, at jeopardy. And so I think there's that protection mechanism there, but normally by the time you're getting into that, that's that's a long way down the road, um, unfortunately. Finally, Joe. Cara, you mentioned um, that, you know, there are protections in place and, you know, of course, as you say, that's sort of down the track. But I just wondered if a high-profile event like this kind of has a chilling effect on entrepreneurship. Oh, I think I think, on, I think naturally um, any, any 
high-profile failure, to use uh, Dean's words, uh, does does make people think cautiously, but I actually don't think that caution when it comes to minimum standards for employees, mm-hmm. like ensuring they're paid for work that they've, been, they've performed. They're done, yes. And, yeah, um, because that's the situation in this particular case is they weren't. They were being told they weren't going to be paid for close to forty days of. Well, I believe it was forty days. Correct me if I'm wrong, Wallace. Um, for work that already it was a couple of weeks, I think, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and and people go to work. Um, they put other areas of their life on hold, um, and they should be remunerated for that. And yeah. so I think it's very sad for those employees. Caro. Really good to have you on the program. Kia ora. Thank you. That's Kara Riga there from Black Door Law, uh, employment lawyer there. Just can I pick up on what you were just saying? Because I didn't know that, Dean. It might be interesting advice for our listeners about, because there's, there's that notion of when to start up a startup, how to start it up, and that idea of failure. So when what was the first what was your first failure, can I ask? Uh, it was called You Buy. So I set it up with a, a buddy of mine from the Air Force, and it would have been like 2002, 2003. And it was an online retailer. So doing online retailing was really hard. Um, and, and you had to set up a website and that. So we set all that up, and then you could come sign up and just sell stuff. Um, and I mean, there were some good elements to it, but I was probably way too early. You should never, I, I, it took me two tries to learn this. You should never be selling something people need but don't want. If I, I, I both my my first two businesses, I was having to explain to my customers why they need it. Also, very bad with timing. The second time, my second business called Get Booking um, was a similar thing, but for services. So you know, web booking, online payments, and all that provided. Um, and I set it up in two thousand and eight. Not a time when companies were really looking to try out new things. So. Amazing. So third time lucky. Third time lucky. Yep. And very lucky. Ah, uh, lucky. Yep. No, and 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 yeah, you might might have to add a zero to your uh, to the the value you put on there. Uh, uh, really? Um, but but um, well, what's the value? What's the valuation of your company? Um, that's a good question. Uh, it, it would be it would be over a hundred million now. Yeah. Well, I'd just like to say I think it, I, I don't, don't get that in cash. I just might. You add. don't need to call that lucky. You know, that's <laughs> sure, someone who no, has persevered. I, yeah. Good correction. Really good correction. But. Um, what was that again? Uh, because uh, the listeners want to know that never, never sell something in you your customers need, need but, but don't, don't want. want. Really hard, especially if it's business. But well, honestly, probably the same for for consumers as well. Really hard. So, um, and I, I tried twice to do that. Um, but but I, I I don't know. I I really liked um, what what the um, the talent said as well about. Uh, Caro. Solemn Caro, the the solemn kind of responsibility of a director. So I take that very seriously as well. I point that to the staff sometimes when we're considering something. I'm like, hey, you know, I'm director. It's my company. I, I could go to jail if we do this wrong. So Well, someone you know. says, let's change the company act. It's been done before. Interesting, Dean, Joe. Uh, 19 past four, the panel, RNZ National. Now, yesterday on the panel, David Cunliffe in his IBT talked about the uh, importance of strategically putting more into the regions that we need more focus on regionalism. Well, one issue that comes up time and time again is that it might be a wonderful lifestyle living, say, in a regional centre, a town, a village. When it comes to access to health, less so. For example, our next guest had recent personal experience in this area. Her closest hospital, Tomanui, shuttered the overnight ward 
earlier this year. With us is Nisha Brenner, uh, Rua Pehu based journalist and qualitative researcher who wrote a piece, very interesting piece on Substack about this. Kia ora, Nisha. Oh, hi, everyone. Firstly, what happened to you? Yeah, so I came down with some illness in mid-December last year. I just thought it was a virus. I tested for COVID, did all those things. wasn't COVID, but I just didn't get better. I started seeing um, a GP remotely in January because under the new Tifata Order model, you can, and that's much easier than accessing health, you know, 15 kilometres down the road in Tamaranui from me. Um, you know, if you make an appointment non-urgent, you can wait up to 12 weeks to see a GP here. And um, the at the moment in the whole of Ruapehu, so north of Tamaranui to Waiuru, there are only, at my count this morning, six GPs for 13,000 people. So it's pretty grim. So I accessed house remotely because I've got, you know, I can afford a cell phone. I've got good internet. And I started seeing a GP in January. I saw a specialist in July. And um, uh, two weeks ago, I ended up having a colonoscopy and endoscopy in Walkworth because it's much easier to access services in Auckland than it is through Waikato DH. In Walkworth? In Walkworth, yeah. Because my Auckland, my doctor was in Auckland, my parents live there, so I can have that as an Auckland address. I may be gaming the system somewhat, but you have to do that when your health's on the line, don't you? This, so, so your, yeah, your personal experience sums it exactly. So Taumurunui, you couldn't necessarily call it a hospital in the sense that it's tiny. No, I, I would say that um, it was a hospital. I mean, in the 1980s, there were three hospitals in Ruapehu. There was the Waiuru-based hospital, oh. there was the Ratahi hospital, and there was the Tamaranui hospital, which had the reputation of being the best orthopaedic and maternity hospital in the whole of New Zealand. Really? But as we know, there was the great rationalisation, rogenomics, centralisation, that kind of agenda to uh, centralise anything to mitigate costs. But the other cost of that is that the health statistics for northern Ruapehu are horrific. You're one, the death rates here are 1.1 t- times higher than the rest of um, the, what was with the Waikato DHB, 2.3 times more likely to turn up at ED to uh, receive help. And I've heard numerous stories of people being, going to their GP and their GP saying, drive yourself to Waikato Hospital it's the fastest way for you to get care. Okay, and that's three hours away. The let's uh, so uh, if yeah, you don't go to yeah, two and a half, three hours. Yeah. And so you know, like right. a lot of the time, St John's um, Hatohone is literally the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. So they're driving people up to get hospital care, which takes an ambulance out for emergencies. Nisha, we've got so, a yeah. panel with us. Uh, let's get, let's get them on and come back to you, Joe. And Nisha, in your Substack piece, I think you make the point really eloquently that the rural health system has been eroded over many years. You know, it's sort of unstaffed and underfunded and under-resourced. And I wondered if there was anything you'd suggest, and it's not going to be a silver bullet that will fix it, but is there anything that would make a difference quickly? Or is this a case of what Te Ora is doing with the rebuild from the ground? Um, I think the locality stuff that Te Ora are doing are great. I've been going to community stakeholder meetings as a researcher um, and as a journalist since 2020. They're well aware of the issues, but, you know, system change is a slow-moving beast. And, I mean, the National Party won't want to hear this, and David Seymour certainly won't. But we need a whole lot of tax money to go into a health system that's been crucially and intentionally underfunded in order to lessen taxes. Okay, Dean. it uh, needs money. So I, um, I have an anecdote to add to it. So the, one of the last things I did when I was in the army was I was a, a liaison officer for a visiting group of soldiers who were using Waiwu as a, a training ground. 
And uh, at two o'clock in the morning, a soldier had dropped an artillery round while they were trying to load it on their finger. Very heavy thing, so it was all mashed up. And um, obviously it's two o'clock in the morning, like the 23rd of December or something, the Wairu base medical's not open and they didn't even have x-ray facilities there anyway. And Palmerston North couldn't take uh, this, this soldier, so I had to put him in a car at two o'clock in the morning and drive to New Plymouth, which is three and a half hours from Wairu. So um, admittedly, I suppose it was a little bit weird because it was the like 23rd of December at 2 o'clock in the morning. but um, Nonetheless. Yeah, so you know, it's quite a drive. Uh, and if you need a place for it to get fixed, I mean, Taimanui doesn't have, for example, an overnight uh, ward here. Uh, let's be really frank here, Nisha. So you've um, you've had this personal experience of health uh, in this beautiful part of the country, Ruapehu. Um, you live in a beautiful part of the country, but, oh. but have you considered a move to a larger centre? I, I think if uh, my health issues were to continue and, um, you know, if it, it's something I'm, I'm seriously considering because, you know, anyone's house can change at a dime. And I enough. can, you know, like I'm lucky. I'm a high earner for this community when I'm earning money. But if you get ill in rural New Zealand and you can't earn the normal money that you can, it's hugely expensive. Because you're paying for, you know, you're paying for trips up to Auckland, you're paying for trips to Waikato, you're paying for remote trips to doctors, you're paying for repeat prescriptions, you're paying, you know, it's probably cost me thousands of dollars. And not everyone can do that, you know. That's why things like free prescriptions in remote rural communities are game changers. And I've talked to people here who said it's fundamentally changed their quality of life. Well, I'd be very interested to hear, Nisha, from people who live in, say, the likes of Taipanui or Ruapehu or wherever it could be, Masterton or Kazerton. How do you feel about your specific regional services? Are you happy with them, in fact? Or your primary care is actually uh, is fine there? Or is it not? And you echo what uh, Nisha's been saying there. Hey, Nisha, nice to have you on the program. Kia ora. I just want to add one thing, yeah. that the practitioners here are absolutely brilliant. Mm-hmm. They're doing the best that they can. But if you're looking after 8,000, 9,000, 13,000 people, you know, it's a sod's task. They'll it's impossible be, to do. They'll be busy GPs. What is it? Six GPs for the 13,000 residents. Can I just say, yeah. when I, I had to go into Dedeen Hospital and the staff there, outstanding. Just yeah. oh, honestly, I get a little bit teary thinking about how, how much they cared about me and how much they like, um, you know, you could just feel it. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Nisha. You're incredible. Good to have you here. That's Nisha Bremner, a Ruapehu based journalist, qualitative researcher there. Uh, Phelan says, uh, Nisha's right about the health system. We moved to the far north and the health system here is woeful in Phelan's view. We cannot have a world class health system. Uh, and uh, do these cuts at the same time, there's magical thinking. And yet, Joe, there's only so much money to go round. That's the thing. Well, that's absolutely true. I'm not saying taxpayers' money is not something that should be spent in any way not responsibly. However, I do think the reality is if I mean not I'm not questioning that for Nisha if she decides to move to a bigger centre, but that's not the solution. Everyone just moved to one of the major cities in New Zealand because there is so much potential in the regions and that is economic potential that could deliver the GDP that would support what you would want for anyone that you knew, which is a first world health system. Yeah. Um 
Logan says, I live in Tauranga and my health is not great. The mental toll of trying to navigate Cameron Road is a big stress for me. Uh, another one, never mind small rural centres being medically ignored. Check out Topo, says someone. So uh, how do you feel your primary health care is uh, and you live in uh, regional New Zealand? It may be fantastic. It may uh, be not. Meanwhile, look, I just have to come back to Joe uh, McCarroll's I've been thinking because there is a lot of it. Um, Joe um, did a big moan uh, at 3.45. Is that what? Like, 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 well, that's a legitimate question that's, that's that people are engaging with, Wallace. Oh, sorry. <laughs> that sounded really unfair. It's, wasn't a, it, was, it was a comment, wasn't it? A comment, yeah. yeah a comment that, that, that I believe has triggered something in the panel audience. For the last four times. Nine you, out of ten. Many times. Are you kidding, it, really? It's a real thing. There's you always get the middle seat. I always get the middle seat, and my partner and you is want on that. You're sick to the back teeth. So much. I don't so you've like got sitting in the middle. Radio. Neither of yeah. us do. Neither of us do. To be fair, um, I booked four seats for the New Zealand last month, and I didn't have to pay extra. Um, I agree. This is scurrilous that you buy a plane ticket and then you need to pay for a seat. Agree, caller. Mm. Um, Texter. Uh, the good seats cost. You can pick any seats, window and aisle, and middle for free. I did it on Tuesday. Um, Stephen in Auckland says, you've probably been booked in as a second passenger, which is why you're being put in the middle rather than the aisle or window seat. But also, why can't you just talk to your partner and swap your seats instead? <laughs> okay, legitimate question. <laughs> It's actually neither good. of us. Neither of us like the middle. Is the thing he believes we should sit in the assigned seats if he has been assigned. Right, um, Jeannie says, is the seat order assigned alphabetically? Perhaps when we would travel as a family of five, the seats would be assigned in alphabetical order according to first name, surname. Was the same for each passenger. So McCarroll, is there something around that? Why you're always really Adam for item. Get in the middle seat. Would you? I, can I can't put under another name. I don't think that's yeah. legal. <laughs> you're very. You're angry about it. I am. I, I. I just want to look at the code now. I bet you look at the code, <laughs> and it'll be, it'll be alphabetical, or it'll be ear points number. Of course, you wouldn't be able to relate to this, would you, Dean? Because you travel business class. Uh, uh, well, we don't have business class in New Zealand. Yeah. You know, haven't haven't since I was a kid. But um, only only if the flight's over like eight hours, then then I'll splash out for it. Oh. But. Um, We're going to save the cafe uh, scenario talk tomorrow because we've run out of time, but we will come back to it. Um, We are in Masterton. The health system is broken. My son has cystic fibrosis, but we have to pay for scripts to be faxed through to the pharmacy. It adds up as they charge $20 to fax it through, even for a child. I'm a teacher. And it's too hard to take time off to make an appointment each time he needs an appointment. We flinch at paying every time and know anyone earning less than us cannot afford it. What a terribly, terribly sad story. I I'd, think I'd, that's a story yeah. that would be repeated across the country and my your, my heart really breaks well, that's, to hear it. I'd love to see us – so when I, when I lived in Prague, the, you could pay a little bit more. It wasn't that much more, but the doctors would actually come visit. 
And I remember talking to one of the doctors and he said it actually saved them a lot of resources for some things because they could go in and visit someone who was very sick and do a lot of things and they didn't have to get admitted to hospital. It's opened a can of worms. My husband and I are in our mid-60s. We have talked the situation over. We are sticking with staying in Tauranga as going to small coastal towns to retire has now lost its appeal due to lack of medical facilities. So, yeah, very interesting. I really appreciate your thoughts this afternoon to come. We've got some music and we are going to Australia, crossing light to Australia, to talk about this mushroom cook. It's been big news uh, across the Tasman.